This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book and is number three of the series <coughs> entitled Glory. In a sense, glory is the goal both of creation and redemption. Ultimately, God is to be glorified in his people. His people are to be glorified in him and it belongs to at least three uh, spheres. The earth is to be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the seas and the heavenly Jerusalem, the Lamb is the light thereof and he's the glory of it and then the far above all position where Christ sits at the right hand of God. So it's a subject which has to do with a goal of redeeming love. And of course immediately you say that you indicate the character of God. God is almighty. But he could not deny himself. There are some things the almighty God cannot do. Let's thank God. He cannot tell a lie. And he could not save you and me just patting us on the head because he was almighty. He spared not his son that righteousness may be acknowledged and so we've got to remember, as we saw in the early stages of this uh, investigation, that the word glory doesn't merely mean magnificence. It is a word which originates in connection with testing a metal to see whether it is genuine. And you and I are going through a test even now. And one day, all for the glory of God, one day we're going to be like him. That's a part of his redeeming love. Now, each sphere has its uh, aspect of glory, like the Apostle writing to this same church in the first epistle, speaking about resurrection. He said there's one glory of the sun, there's another glory of the moon, there's a glory of the stars, and one star differs from another star in glory. So is the resurrection. So we must be careful not to confuse issues we're not worthy of the least of his benefits, but if he's revealed the highest and most wonderful, we bow our heads with thanksgiving and praise his name for this glory of his grace. Well now, here we have before us this evening a passage which I think is uh, asking for consideration. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. Here we have this um, chart which you will see with this tape recording and the uh, peculiar figure at the top is to represent as best I could in the circumstances a Jew at worship with a tollis uh, they pronounce it in this part of the world Whitechapel tollis, not tollis a tollis over his head reading the scriptures. And the apostle knew that because he was a Jew. And he knew the wearing of the Thomas. But he said, alas, not only over their head, but over their heart when they read the scriptures. So remember that with you. At the other end of the chapel is another drawing that makes it a bit more perhaps obvious. I'm only saying that because about 50 years ago, I got into the good books of a Jewish shop down Whitechapel, and when they found I was interested, I bought the Tullus and I bought Phylacteries and I bought a Mezuzah and all these other things 
but a moth is no respecter of persons and I had a lash to put the whole thing on the fire and I'm not able to show you the original. Having said this about the Tollis, I'll say one bit more and then we'll get on. You know that every Hebrew or every Greek letter has a numerical value. Uh, Alpha is one, Beta is two, or Aleph is one, and Beth is two, and so on. So that um, the word Tollis or Tollis would have a numerical value. Well now, Moses Maimonides, a great rabbi, he went through the Old Testament scriptures and found that there were 613 precepts, positive and negative, in the law. 613. Now, if you knew the Hebrew alphabet and its numerical value, you'd know that the word Taurus adds up to 600. So, you will find that um, on the picture at the other end, they've added, they've added little threads the four threads going through making eight threads and they've tied them in these five knots because eight and five make thirteen. Can you, can you see the working of their mind? They've got six hundred and thirteen now when they put that on their head. They're completely covered by the obedience to every precept of the law positive and negative in this picture. Don't you see the yearning of the heart expressed in this peculiar way? going into the presence of God with a symbol of absolute perfect righteousness. Aren't you thankful you haven't got to wear all these things? Aren't you thankful for the robe of righteousness freely given? But we can look at this without smiling, I hope, and see the searchings of heart that may have gone on to do this thing. And even to this day, down some of the back streets of East London, you'll see a little boy playing and wagging out from his shirt front will be the five knots and the eight strings. He's got it round his neck all the time. That's still there. Well, now that <coughs> has a bearing <coughs> on this passage this evening. The actual words uh, that are to occupy our attention are the words which we find in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, what does he mean when he says changed from glory to glory? Well, I think the context will immediately illuminate that. Shall we look at the structure of this passage and follow it by reading the passage through? You will notice that there's an emphasis in the beginning of this section upon not treating the word of God deceitfully. The second chapter, verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. So there's two members. They do not corrupt the word of God. They speak in the sight of God. Now if you'll look at chapter 4, um, verse 1 and 2, you'll see an echo of that. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, of course we've got to find what that ministry is, 
As we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So there we have the um, not corrupting, but speaking in the sight of God, and not handling deceitfully, but commending ourselves in the sight of God. Now we come back again. You notice in chapter 3, we have emphasised the face of Moses. Verse 13, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Surely that's on purpose, the face of Moses and the face of Jesus Christ. But with regard to the face of Moses, you discover it was but a passing glory. It goes on to say, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, a passing glory. But we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses was a very wonderful servant and a very wonderful prophet but no possibility of comparison between him and the ministry he had, and this one and the ministry he had. So they are balanced, you see, the two faces, the one veiled so that you shouldn't quite see it was passing, the other unveiled, revealing the nature and being of God who sent him. And then we have these words in the middle, uh, just the end of this chapter. But before that we notice that after speaking of the veil on Moses' face, the Apostle speaks about his own people. Verse 14 of chapter 3, But their minds were blinded. For until this, not, not merely their eyes were blinded, you see. That was but a symbol of their mind. Their mind was blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away, in the reading of the Old Testament. And that's so true. If you ever, ever had contact with an Orthodox Jew, you're conscious there's a something you can't get through apart from the Spirit of God and His grace. I remember when the time came for me to contemplate moving from uh, Stockwell, we were left with a twelve-roomed house and just mother and myself. That was hopeless, wasn't it, business? And a Jew was after it. And I was at Reading, and he came at eleven o'clock at night because he wanted it so well. So I showed him into my room where all the scriptures were, and in about two minutes the transaction was over, the cheque was made out, the house was his, and the rest of the half hour I was turning to Old Testament prophecies that he'd never read in his life. I remember years ago, must be more than 50 years ago, down to the back of Pedicate Lane, with a crowd round me that I couldn't see the edge of, Friends, if you can speak in Pedicate Lane on your own, you can speak in a chapter of the open book without being very much upset. You know that. And there I was challenged, and this Jew says, I'm back in your Protestant Bible. Well, I said, I'm only just staggering and trying to fish out Hebrew words. 
Have you got a Hebrew Bible? Yes. Where is it? I got it at home. I said, will you fetch it? Yes. I said, shall we wait? Oh, of course the crowd did. Well, he came with a Bible about this size. Opened it there in the open air. I said, now read that passage in Daniel, the ninth chapter. Yekoresh Mashiach, the Aidlo. Can you hear the word Mashiach? That's the Messiah, we say. Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. He said, I've never read that before. I said, then why do you let your rabbi tell you not to compute the days of the Messiah? Never read Daniel 9, never read Isaiah 53. You never will, will you? Don't you see, the poor Jew is blinded by his own teachers and by his own prejudice. They've got a veil on their hearts, not only on their eyes. So the apostle who knew all this, he'd been there himself, he'd worn this very thing and knew its symbolism. That his eyes were opened to see the glory of God in that face on the road to Damascus and turn the persecuting Pharisee into the humble and wonderful apostle of grace to the Gentiles. And so he could well speak about the different faces, the face of Moses and the face of Christ. So let's go on again a little bit further. There is hope in the end for this people. This verse 16, nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. It's not for eternity. It's for time. They are veiled until. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to look upon him in what capacity? As king? As lord? As priest? They shall look upon me whom they pierced. And the moment they recognize what that means, the veil's gone. And they become a kingdom of priests to the blessing to the earth when he comes in glory to rule and reign in righteousness. But that's a day that's future for us. Now he says in verse 18, but we all, now here's the pity of our authorised version. I don't mean to say that they didn't weigh this thing over, but why they didn't put unveiled? Why open face? We're dealing with a veil all the way through these two chapters. And they got that opportunity to say unveiled, and they didn't. Well, let's, let's put it in mentally at least. He's not saying open face, whatever that may mean. He says, we all with unveiled face. That's the difference between the Jew as a Jew and the Christian as a Christian. The one has a veiled face and cannot see, and the other has the unveiled face that he can. And then look at this. Go into the Old Testament scriptures. The, the seraphim that stood there and said, holy, 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 with their six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. Isn't it extraordinary to think that those holy beings veil their faces in the presence of the Lord and we all with unveiled face beholding. Ah, but then he slips the mirror in between. Beholding as in a mirror. Don't use the word glass because it would be metal. And he uses the same figure in the writing to the Corinthians in another passage. He says, we see now, not through a glass, that's such a pity because most people think they're looking through a window. We see now by means of, through, we use the word through in that sense, we see by means of a mirror enigmatically. Because some of those mirrors were not absolutely perfectly flat. And when you looked at your face, it was all skewed up a bit, you see. 
I suppose you've seen mirrors like that, at least when you've been away for your seaside holidays. You go up and down in front of a mirror too, you know. See, like that. He says, that's how far we get now. Let's be thankful for what we do see. But, oh, what a day will come. And so he says, And we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. If this could happen to us here in this world, what would it be? As the Apostle John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. We know not what we shall be, but we know when we shall see him, we shall be like him. And when we see him, it won't be in a mirror. It'll be face to face. And that, seeing him, is all that's necessary to produce the marvellous transfiguration. But it goes on here, in a sense, a small sense. So let's read on. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed or transfigured. You see, it isn't the mere studying of the scriptures. It isn't merely the cramming of our minds. It's an eye that's looking to him. Salvation, look unto me and be ye saved. And when they shall see him, they shall be like him. The more he fills our vision, the less room for the other things to come in, and the nearer to the glory we shall come, although we'll never reach it in this life, because body and spirit are going to be changed, and we're going to be transfigured, as Paul says, into the likeness of his glory. But here he's now speaking about from one glory to another, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Well, now you see what he's driving at, don't you? He says, there's a glory in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, although it brought condemnation. It was glorious in the fact that it came from God. And it was so stupendously glorious that Sinai was all of a smoke and they feared because of the terrific sight they saw. Oh yes, it was glorious, but it was a glory that led to death because it demanded an obedience that no man could ever offer. But now we are transfigured from one, we're changed from that one to a glory which brings salvation, which brings righteousness, which makes you accepted in the Beloved, which gives you a standing in his presence. So he's stressing to these people. You see, Paul had to fight for the truth. You can gather that in his earlier epistles. In Galatians, this idea of making the Gentile become a Jew before he could become a Christian. He fought it tooth and nail. And he said, we yielded, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might come right through to you. And then we have right into the Corinthians, he got philosophic people a bit more. They weren't so much concerned about the Jewish side, but he says about wisdom, the wisdom of this world in comparison with Christ. So all the way through he was facing these different objections. And here he says, if only we belong to him and have accepted this glorious revelation of his love to us, we have changed from the glory that condemns to the glory that saves and gives us this blessed hope. Now, of course, we are reading about something which is past so far as we are concerned. You and I are not under the new covenant. These people were being translated from the old covenant to the new covenant. But when I come to my position, 
in the epistle to the Ephesians. And let me say this, don't you get bogged up with people who tell you we don't quite know whether Paul ever wrote to the Ephesians or not. Say, no, well, what I'm concerned about, did he write to me? What's it matter whether he wrote to Ephesus or some other church? Let that be. But you say, how could we tell them? Well, look, when in chapter 2 he described the church that he was writing to, he says, you know, at that time, you were strangers and aliens and no hope and no Christ. Well, that was me, all right. And as far as I know, that was you, all right. Because you couldn't look back to your fathers and see a sort of national religion in that sense, no. So here it is. We haven't come under the terms of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is there, described in the prophet Jeremiah, and is picked out into the New Testament, but it has still to do with the covenant people. Now we come to another glory. We can take these words again from ourselves and say, we have changed from that glory to this one, which we find by the prisoner of Jesus Christ giving us the marvellous teaching in Ephesians 1, 2 and 3, concerning the choice before the foundation of the world, concerning the sphere of blessing at the right hand of God far above all, and disposing and setting aside of ordinances and worshipping certain days and what not are all gone. So you see, we can listen with sympathy to his argument to these people, and we can learn the lesson ourselves, I trust, with regard to the next step in the seeing the unfading, unrolling purpose of God. But now, another feature. Another feature is this, I think, that you notice the emphasis upon uh, not handling the word of God deceitfully or corrupting. Let's remind ourselves again. Verse 17 of the uh, chapter 2. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. But then he immediately says, I don't think I'm commending myself. Uh, you could feel this man is often swayed one by another. I often look at his closing chapter in Philippians. He's thanking God that they came to his rescue financially. And he said, oh, oh, don't you think I'm asking for another gift? Can't you sympathise with him? And then he says, oh, that little thing that was brought while I was in prison, it was very precious. It was like a sweet savour. The very words used of Christ's sacrifice. He was a very lovely man, the Apostle Paul, in, in all these different moods that he manifests that we can uh, sympathise with him. But here he says, <coughs> while I'm emphasising the fact that I do really stand for the truth and I haven't truckled, he said, verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Now, some of them had those letters. We had to read about them in the scriptures. They send somebody to another church and they send a letter of commendation. The Apostle Paul says, who's going to give me a letter of commendation? Who's going to give it to him? And then he turns the story and says, I don't need a letter of commendation. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. He says, if anybody asks for my credentials, I don't bring out a little bit of paper. He says, I point to you in Corinth. I point to you 
in Galatia. I point to you in Rome. And you know what sort of people you were. And you know what sort of people you are by the grace of God. That's enough, he said. And so it is for us, isn't it? And so he says, he, he pursues us a bit further. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshy tables of the heart. And that leads him on, you see, to this reference to Moses, the uh, glory that was passing, and the veiling of the face of Moses, so that they shouldn't realise that it was a transitory thing. But now this emphasis upon speaking the truth, and in no sense um, veiling it, comes out again in chapter 4. Notice how he says here, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. Notice the simplicity of the man, the humbleness of the man. Writing to Timothy, he says, I receive mercy to be faithful. He was conscious of the betrayal that goes on in the human heart back to itself. So he says here, We have received mercy, we faint not. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handing the word of God deceitfully. <coughs> now, I don't think I've ever written yet a letter to anybody and said, I'm not uh, walking in craftiness, because nobody has ever accused me. And I don't think the Apostle Paul would have ever said it if somebody hadn't accused him. The things I said about that man, because he stood for the truth. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, here comes a passage which I think has puzzled most of us. Let's look at it. But if our gospel be hid, now that word hid is the word veiled. Shall we put that back? Don't you see the pity? They start with a veil. They say open face instead of unveiled face. Then they say hid instead of veiled. So put it back in your mind, you see. If our gospel be veiled, it is veiled to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now, just exactly what does he mean? If our gospel be veiled, it is veiled to them that are lost. Right. In whom the God of this world blinded somebody else. Now, we seem to have gone off a line somewhere. This double emphasis. So let's look at it a bit more carefully. This word lost, if our gospel be lost, doesn't he say in um, the earlier chapter that Moses put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished? So there was something that was going to be abolished or lost. And it was covered up so that you shouldn't see it. Now this is what the devil has done. You see, the devil doesn't mind using the scriptures as long as they're wrong ones. You remember the character in one of Shakespeare's plays? He said, he quotes Holy Writ when most I play the devil. Oh yes, he could use it to his own ends. And he's fabricated a veil, Satan has, 
to put on the hearts of God's people that he's made it out of the law of Moses. The law of Moses is holy, <coughs> just and good. But if it's used in the wrong sense, it can be evil. He says, you're still under the law of Moses when you ought to be delivered by the redemption of Christ. You observe days, I'm afraid of you, lest I've laboured in vain. Don't you see, he says, what are we to do with ordinances or keeping Sabbath days or new moons? In the shadow we've got the reality. And if Satan can't get you any other way, he'll put a veil over your heart and your mind and you'll be taken up with shadows and ordinances and weeks and days and ceremonies, anything except the full glory of the Son of God. So what my translation, which I suggest to you to test, is this. But if our gospel be veiled, it is veiled by those things which are lost or abolished. They've been picked up by the evil one to use all over again. By which, not in whom, by which the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not why, were the one supreme object, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Don't you see he's balancing the two faces? The veiled face of Moses. He would not let the children of Israel realise that it was a passing thing. The unveiled face of Jesus Christ. All see that, he says. And then Satan brings the veil and puts it over the heart and mind of the believer. And he's so taken up with ordinances and ceremonies and various aspects of legalism that the glory in the face of Christ doesn't have its redeeming, sanctifying, strengthening effect. So that's the reason why this goes interchanging, interchanging with the thought he didn't handle the word of God deceitfully. Somebody is, he says, because the devil uses instruments. I don't mean to say that Satan himself entered into the church at Corinth and they knew that. It was some speaker, some teacher at Corinth who was taking them back and putting them under the law. As you know, he wrote to the Galatians, he spoke about him that troubles you, forbear his own judgment. And so here we have then this twofold aspect. There's a glory belonging to the law of Moses, and in its right place it must be honoured. But the day has come, said he, when the gospel of the grace of God must take its place temporarily. And don't you be taken up with that veil, which is only blinding your eye to the glory of the risen Christ, and if only the veil is taken away, we all with unveiled face, beholding, certainly beholding as in a mirror, we haven't got the reality yet, but we've got nearer to it, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are transfigured from glory to glory, from the glory of old, old covenant to the glory of the new covenant. And then you and I can come along and say, have we been translated from the glory of the new covenant, if ever we were under it, to a glory that's beyond dreams? the glory at the right hand, far above all principality and power, so that we can put ourselves temporarily in the position of these Corinthians and then readjust it so that it reads with some of the marvellous terms of Ephesians. So well, I've got here now then the, um, the glorious gospel of the uh, Christ who is the image of God. You see, that's one thing that can never be said of Moses. He was a wonderful prophet. And our Saviour himself said, that he quoted, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you like unto me. But he was never the image of God. Not in that sense. 
But this one that's speaking is the image of God. Coming to us in a sense that no man, no prophet, no priest, no king, under the terms of the old covenant, could ever fill. And again he says, I'll take you right back to Genesis 1. Now there are some folks who withstand the interpretation that Genesis 1 verse 2 means uh, something that happened, like a downfall. They say no. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became without form and void, that's how God created it. They won't have the idea that it was before the overthrow of the world. Although I think, uh, if you like to look up the passages, you'll find that practically every reference to that word in the Old Testament, especially in the Septuagint, means to smash walls down and break things up and uh, what not. But anyhow, here it says, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Now, the shining out of darkness is a picture of the way in which we were saved. Were we saved just as we were created by God innocent? No, we were darkness. That's Genesis 1 verse 2. Darkness was upon the face of the deep and God said, let there be light. And God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. So that it takes me back to Genesis 1 verse 2 and I can see that that's a picture of sin and its dominion. Whatever else folks may say. And then he comes to this wonderful little tray in Paul's character. He'll be carrying on alarming with regard to some things and suddenly there's a little break. Oh, he said, I don't think I'll magnify myself, will you? Don't think that. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Oh, there's the contrast between the treasure and the vessel. He said, I've been laying the law down on, I've been saying like this, but oh, don't think I'm boasting of myself. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And if God didn't use earthen vessels, there'd be very few of us here, would there? So let's be grateful that he stoops to use an earthen vessel, but it's what he puts in it that matters most. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, I don't know whether any of the friends here, especially the men who are a part of this uh, congregation, I've ever said oh it came to pieces in the hand, have you? One of the things I studiously avoid is any attempt to suggest even that I should help wipe up because as sure as anything it'll come to pieces in the hand well this man knew that, I don't know how far he knew it as a boy or what not but he said we are troubled on every side yet not distressed we are persecuted, but not in despair. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, that's dropped. But the miracle, the earthen vessel doesn't break. That's a miracle. Cast down, but not destroyed. Now why? Always bearing about in the body <coughs> the dying of the Lord Jesus. Oh, that sounds mournful. Oh, wait a minute. Resurrection follows death. The dying of the Lord Jesus. No trusting itself that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. 
For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might, might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. And then he's back again to the fact that he had stood resolutely, spoken the word of God without alteration. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken, we also believe, and therefore speak. And so we've had brought before us this evening another phase and aspect of this subject which is before us, the idea of glory. We have grace for grace, we have from glory to glory. And these things should be pondered, because they reveal to us that it's not one dead level. As the Apostle said with regard to resurrection, there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and even among the stars, one star differs from another star in glory. I think we ought to be glad to think there'll be some variety in glory, don't you? God has got all this in mind and he's telling us. <coughs> and so, we each one of us have an individual responsibility. While the Apostle puts himself forward as a pattern, he doesn't expect us to be aping Paul. No, he doesn't want merely copyists like that. But we can gather from him the way in which he accommodated himself, the way in which he acted, the way in which he got his strength, and we can do same in the same strength by serving the same Lord. So there's another contribution, and I trust that the chart that accompanies it will speak even perhaps better than I've been able to this evening. You see, I said in the opening that we would look at the way in which the word is used. That was the concordant method. In the second meeting, we looked at the family of the words. That's the lexicon. And now we're using a structure. The third opportunity, and there it is. Uh, although it's, I, I've worked it out myself, I haven't copied it from anybody else. Yet I think in most cases you'll acknowledge that it works, it's there. So we have, we do not corrupt the word of God, but to speak in the sight of God. And we come down here, we do not handle the word of God deceitfully and commend it in the sight of God. There's, there's, there's the face of Moses, there's the face of Jesus Christ, and then the passing glory and the unveiled face. And so we have, at the bottom, I've written out so that you may keep in mind a suggestion but if our gospel be veiled by those things that are perishing, it is veiled, by which the God of this age blinded the minds of those that believe not. So we've got to remember that Satan is busy in scriptural things. Don't forget, with all the horrible things associated with sin and wickedness, Satan is a religious being. And the one great thing he's out for is worship. Have you noticed that? The temptation of Christ. I'll give you all that you've come to do for one act of worship. Fancy that. Challenge to the Saviour. Must have had some meaning in it. It's the usurpation of the place of Christ and of God that he's out for. And as one novelist of years ago wrote a novel, The Sorrows of Satan, that he wishes people wouldn't be wicked. The people wouldn't commit adultery and murder because of his instigation. That's spoiling his opportunity. He'd be glad for a millennium to come with peace on earth with himself in the throne. And that's just the one thing that can never be. You cannot oust and never will 
the Son of God. So we have before us then various aspects of glory. We've got still to look at the use of glory in connection with our own epistles, Ephesians and Colossians, before we can say we've surveyed it in any sense of fullness. But I don't promise anything, it's just week by week, day by day, and I trust that after these meetings are over, and after the recording has been listened to, you open the scriptures yourself once more to get it first hand. For the one great feature in our witness here is we call ourselves Bereans. We don't force a truth upon anyone. We say the Berean attitude is to search and see if it is so. And then you'll stand in the strength of the word of God and not in the strength of some poor person like myself who might ultimately collapse and fail.